You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, the pod people I live in are from España. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam Thomas. And, yep, uh, Pod People exists. And me amo es Thomas Mariani. That was awful. <laughs> Donde esta la biblioteca? <laughs> Donde esta el sanitario? <laughs> Dos cervezas, por favor. <laughs> yep. Margarita? <laughs> uh. That's the extent of the attempts that Spanish will be doing for the evening. You're welcome. But. Yep, that, that's about it. But welcome to Devil Edge Devil Bill. Every week we have a, a double feature that's picked at the end of our last episode that we discuss. Um, so each week, Adam and I will have either two good movies or two bad movies that we end up picking the movie for good and bad. And our topic this week, we should mention, was voted on by our lovely patrons at patreon.com slash gedbpod, where you can vote for topics that we cover for the show. We'll talk a bit more about that near the end of the show. Um, but they decided between uh, two foreign nations uh, whose cinema we haven't really covered as a full topic before, um, between France, which I think was sort of the odds-on favorite, and then the surprise winner, which is our actual topic for the evening, which was Spain, which um, I was very welcome and surprised to see. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I absolutely thought it was going to be French cinema. But, hey, I'll take Spain. Well, and to be fair, looking at my limited research, which was code for I went on Wikipedia and a couple other of the main Google hits, I didn't leave the first page. Fancy me. From what I could gather, uh, a lot of, like, cinema was actually born in France, some of the first, like, silent shorts were done in France. But a lot of that spread to nations like Spain. Actually, a lot of, like, Spanish filmmakers ended up kind of coming over and doing some stuff. And Spain was, like, a pretty big market even as early as, like, the silent film era for film. Even there was a practice before dubbing was a thing where people would actually shoot an entire movie in English over in the States and then shoot entirely in other languages, including Spanish, which is one of the more popular markets. Like, there's a version of Dracula that exists that was shot on the same sets, uh, from 1932, but with Spanish actors. Yeah, it's, that's pretty cool, too. I've actually looked up uh, a lot of scenes from that and things like that. Plus, on the Blu-ray collection I had, they had a lot of that stuff added in. And it, it is actually really fascinating. And some of it, when you're watching it, like, eh, I might like this better. Yeah, I've seen the full um, Spanish version of Dracula, and I'll say it's almost a better movie, except for one key factor, which is their Dracula is not nearly as good as Bella. No, he's not. No, everyone else is great, though. It's a, it's a version I would recommend. It also has, like, a lot of shots where you're like, oh, this is, like, 1931, and they can move the fucking camera like this? Incredible. You never expect it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but what is your relationship with Spanish cinema? 
Adam? What, what are, what, when did you sort of start becoming aware of Spain as a source of the cinema? I, you know, to actually sit and pinpoint it, I don't know that I can. Well, I got this gun pointed to you, and you better do it. You better fucking say it. Tell me. Uh, 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 but uh, as far as movies that came out of Spain, I'm not 100% sure, but movies in Spanish language... Uh, I've sort of obviously always known they were around and the Mexican film explosion with like Robert Rodriguez and things like that happened when I was real young. So I, I think that's probably set me on the trail of getting into them. And then obviously you got like Del Toro with like the, a lot of his focus on the Spanish civil war and, and the Mexicans and all that stuff. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's definitely a uh, country of origin as far as film goes that I don't know that I'm as versed in that I thought I was, to be honest. No, I think a lot of that does kind of come from, you mentioned sort of like there's more of obviously an exposure for us in North America to like Mexican cinema with like, I remember there was when um, Del Toro, Alfonso Cuaron, and Inaritu were all like nominated for Oscars that one Oscar season. Babel and Pan's Labyrinth and uh, Cuaron was, um, I've got Children of Men. And so, like, they was, like, three prominent ones. Like, oh, my God, these, like, Mexican filmmakers coming up. So that was kind of the gateway where I exposed, was exposed to, like, Spanish cinema and through, like, that Mexican stuff, obviously. But at the same time, I think that's also kind of, like, blurred the lines to us dumb Americans, unfortunately, in a way that I agree. I think it kind of has made our awareness of Spain as a cinematic landscape a bit more limited, unfortunately, than it should be. Yeah, no, right. Like I said, I mean, when I was even going through trying to pick out the good ones for this, I mean, I, I just, there's a wealth of films that I just have not seen. And you end up with two movies from the same director who is very prominent, maybe the most prominent Spain filmmaker of all time. Yeah, probably. And I mean, like I said, on the end of the last show, that wasn't even on fucking purpose. And how odd is it that today's his birthday as well? Yes. Uh, the day we're if you're If you're listening, show. Pedro, I'm sure you're listening to a podcast in English, obviously. He might, I mean, he might be. We don't know. Maybe maybe when we're done, somebody records this in Spanish. Um, <laughs> like I said, there's something I definitely want to maybe dip my toes into a little bit more. So, I mean, that's kind of what makes this a little bit more exciting, I think, than maybe French cinema. That's true, yeah. Um, and we'll get more into it here uh, as these two novices dip their toes into this particular water of cinema with... Uh, two films. Uh, our first, we'll be covering our bad pick that we picked at the end of the last episode, which was Pod People from 1983, and then we'll be doing our good pick, which is The Skin I Live In from 2011. So uh, let's go ahead and dip in with Pod People. <laughs> So, Pod People came out December 13th, 1983, and uh, it's interesting we keep mentioning France because this was a Spain and France co-production, which you didn't find out. Uh, they apparently shot it in both languages, um, though we ended up watching the infamous dubbed in English version um, that most people were probably aware of after 1983 when this was featured prominently as one of the more sort of memorable episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000, which we've kind of talked about on and off on the show, but we're both very big fans of that show. It was a big reason for, like, why we kind of maybe do this show in retrospect. Oh, with I mean, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, that and Siskel and Ebert, believe it or not. Mystery Science Theater and Siskel and Ebert 
sort of made me realize that you could just talk about movies in a sort of uh, a silly way, but also a clinical way if you wanted to. Yes, um, and I actually did rewatch the Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode of this um, to refamiliarize myself with it after watching the non-MST3K version. And it's interesting, I don't do that that often. We've kind of danced around the idea of maybe doing that as a show topic of, like, oh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 movies. But the trouble is, if you're not as aware with Mystery Science Theater 3000, they tend to edit the movies a lot so they could fit in the host segments where the bots and whatever hosts would come out and, like, do their skits, and then also the commercials, obviously. You know, you appreciate those editors a lot more sometimes when you watch these movies where not a lot happens. Yeah, this, uh... Hmm. This is a movie. It, 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 how? What? How? Why? Well, uh, <laughs> I think there's a couple of reasons. Like, let, 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 let me at least go into maybe a synopsis a bit. So, this oh, movie okay. has like three different storylines that are going on basically at the same time, all centered around like in the middle of the woods. There's initially this group of hunters that come across a big nest full of eggs. And those eggs turn out to be weird aliens. Um, and the aliens attack and murder a lot of the hunters, except for, like, two, who sporadically appear throughout the movie as, like, two drunken assholes. are just like, hey, what's going on over there? I don't know, let's see. Because they have to interrupt the other story that gets us to the forest, in which a group of young musicians, who are, like, in a hippie commune, I think, um, go off into the forest... Um, and they find these aliens themselves, and they're like, oh my god, this is so scary, let's go into this house where our third story takes place, where it's a family that lives in this house, and the son, an only child, discovers one of these eggs, and basically nurses it to hatch, and producing one of these aliens, who he calls Trumpy. Yep. That is all true. <laughs> and... <laughs> Holy shit. First of all, the creature design in this is so laughably bad. What are you talking about? I Trumpy it, looks like such a great menacing figure. Oh, it's so fucking bad. And the acting is terrible. That little kid. I mean, he's just so annoying. The clearly adult woman who kept, like, overdubbing him in the version that we saw, I just wanted to say, hey, calm down. <laughs> You're no Nancy Cartwright. It's laughably offensive and bad uh the dubbing in this the dubbing is just atrocious uh that probably added to my hatred of it even more i know you gave it a plot synopsis and i did watch the movie i've seen like you both the mystery science theater 3000 version and the in the the unrift version and uh i still am kind of unsure about what's the point of this movie well, I think it's a weird thing, because we should probably mention, um, the director is a Juan Piquier Simon, uh, who most would probably know for his weird exploitation horror movies, including one that I hadn't seen until doing a bit of research for this episode of Pieces. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah which yeah. Um, is a movie we should discuss on the show, because that's fascinating as a movie. <laughs> it's such a weird fucking movie that I can't believe exists. Like He also did Slugs. From what I've gathered, he tended to make sort of movies that kind of fit into the spectrum that we love whenever a foreign director makes, like, American movies, where it's like, oh, this is what an American production is. This is what, like, American kids would want to see. 
versus I think this one's trying to do that for more of like a worldwide status where it's like oh like a, any kids in Spain could watch this because it's like a group of fucking kids going out in the middle of the woods and then very clearly this movie was in production around the time of E.T. so they freaking wedge in an E.T. ripoff plot with this little kid and the alien though honestly like despite how much that clearly feels wedged in all the interesting quote-unquote stuff that happens in the movie happens with the kid and Trumpy like, all the stuff where it's everybody wandering around the woods, it's like, I do not give a single fuck. Like, why are we wandering around the woods with these fucking idiots who can't sing a proper song, which we should get into later? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's things in this movie, like, when Trumpy does all his, like, magic for the kid, and then with all the cats making noises, and then and it's, it's almost jarring to the senses a, a little bit. And you just, <laughs> I, I had a hard time forming senses on this movie because it's just, I don't care about anybody or anything in this movie. Like kind of from the get, like it's because it's so poorly shot and the, the film quality is atrocious. Yes. Um, everything looks like it's at night. Like this is day for night, the movie. <laughs> yeah. No, a thousand percent. And it's just Oh, I mean, obviously this movie has a cult following because of, I, I, it's got to be because of mystery science and yeah. maybe because like he, like you said, he did do pieces and slugs and things like that. So maybe it's kind of like because of the other cult favorites or genre favorites that he's done. But I mean, this is, this is so, so bad, so unbelievably bad to where I got to be honest with you. Now I've seen this technically three times, if you count the two times I've seen it, MST3K. And I remember the MST3K jokes more than anything in this movie, in the actual film. Like, it's just, what the fuck, dude? What I would say is I remember more of the stuff, like I mentioned, with Tommy the Little Kid and Trumpy. Because all that stuff has some of the weird, almost like, it feels like it's ripped from a very odd 60s Disney live-action movie feel to it like literally the whole sequence you're talking about where like trumpy makes everything like move magically is very much a ripoff of like the uh spoonful of sugar bit from mary poppins because it's like stop motion and weird shit's going on and trumpy's like moving clothes around and the chair goes up all this other shit that's at least all like okay this is weird what the fuck's happening as opposed to all the stuff involving the adults is so endlessly dull it's just like, I, I don't get why we're even bothering with this why, go back to the kid trying to badly hide the alien <laughs> <laughs> I know, I love when they put, he puts him in the coat and the alien's just standing behind them. <laughs> they don't see him. But no, there's that, and then, but even the the scene where he is moving the stuff around and everything, like, her, uh, you know, Hernlotter did it in Basket Case, when, I don't know if you remember, but when, like, Belial in that movie's flipping the fuck out yeah. and throwing furniture around him. And it looks really bad, but there's, like, a sense of almost charm to it. This just looked bad like just piss poorly done like nothing in this movie was handled well in my opinion even that like the shit you're talking about the kid and the and trumpy even that like the charm that they were hoping would be there the connection that you know you may feel or whatever you know as far as it being not the worst part of the movie and I, I love that you're confusing like my it's slightly memorable with like i had a deep emotional connection with trumpy in this no, 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 no. Well, that's why i went back <laughs> 
That's why I went back on it. Look, like, Trumpy it, is one of the greatest cinematic aliens of all time. <laughs> Fuck E.T. It's all about Trumpy. Where that might be the least offensive, maybe part of the movie, the the boy and the and Trumpy together, but it's still so just poorly handled and, and just basically a, a last minute E.T. tack on ripoff, and it's. I'd rather watch Mac and Me over this movie. Oh no, Mac and Me is far more consistently entertaining because Mac and Me has the lovable factor of like, oh, everything about this movie is weird. It's not just, oh, there's a weird alien and the kid going around and everything else is boring. Like, every corner of that movie has a very poor decision that's at least fascinating. As opposed to, like I said, all of those sort of moments that are somewhat like that only involve this one storyline that feels very much wedged in. Like, the only thing I like with any of adults is obviously the bit I referenced where they perform their song near the beginning, which, if you've heard anything from MST3K, like, the most memorable thing is their weird, silly cover of this badly dubbed song where you can't really decipher any of the lyrics whatsoever. And there's a guy off to the side. Guy is wearing, like, an I'm a virgin t-shirt, and the woman is just like, oh, man, they're really good. No, he's the best. (laughs) What the fuck's happening? (laughs) That's a fun sequence, and then they just drive around and they, like, try and have sex with each other, and it's boring. I gotta be honest, I want that shirt a little bit. (laughs) I would buy that shirt. Buy the version from from Frank Conniff. I'm sure he'll sell it to you. Oh, I'm sure he would. The adults in this movie are so bland and so just stupid. And it's like, how can that fucking dumbass not hit that thing with that shotgun four different times? It's like, it's at point blank rage. He's like, ah, and he misses it. Like, it's just, this movie, fuck you, Thomas, for picking this. This is easily... And my top three of worst that we've done for the show. Doing research for especially like the bad Spain cinema, I just found a lot of things that would have seemed a lot less enticing, but also would have been probably longer. Like I was sure. contemplating, there was like The Loving Pablo, which is apparently the really bad Pablo Escobar movie with Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz. Oh um, God. Oh, I've seen right. that one. Thank, thank God you didn't pick that one. Or uh, Automaton was the other one I had, which from all I... Like, most of like what I've seen of bad Spanish cinema tends to be just like really boring cinema as opposed to like interesting to talk about to any degree. And we would have spent much more time watching like, what, two hour long movies as opposed to this movie that is over in like 80 minutes. That's honestly part of why I picked it, because it's just like it was a lot harder to kind of pick the bad end of this. I mean, I get that. I, I absolutely agree that would probably be a little bit harder, especially if you are familiar with the genres we both discovered. But this movie did not feel like 80 minutes. This movie felt like it was easily two hours long. I was just bored to tears and hating myself and hating you <laughs> and questioning everything. But also, you forgot so much of it. That's the fascinating thing. You won't remember this in, like, two weeks. Yeah, that's that's true. I guess that's a good point. God, look at you. There you go again. <laughs> With my intellect. My brilliant yeah, brain. Yeah. We should maybe talk a bit more about Trumpy himself. Which I do love that how ridiculous that design is. Where he looks like a snork with a fucking teddy bear body. Basically, he's got this, like, giant long snout. And his version of whatever weird, like... Uh, powers usually comes up with like flashing after effects and all this other shit. Um, it's such a fascinating miscalculation of like the ET appeal, which even then feels so odd. Now we've talked about ET previously on the show, but they're they're weird sort of ideas. Like okay, let's get what we can and make an ugly alien because kids will think it's cute, like the other ugly alien. 
I I guess like what would you say maybe has more of the appeal for like just the look of E.T. versus the look of like a Trumpy to people? Hey, E.T. doesn't have a furry body, uh, inexplicably, with a a, a foe ant eater slash elephant slash whatever the shit face this thing has. Plus, E.T. you know, E.T. has more personality, man. Its eyes move. It it its mouth moves. It talks. It it you know, eats fucking Reese pieces and plays dress up. I mean, this fucking thing does nothing. It eats peanuts out of clearly a vacuum. <laughs> like a vacuum hose just with clay on it. Honestly, the only time I found Trumpy remotely cute was when he was, like, just hatched out of the egg and he's, like, the size of an action figure. And if anything, it should have just kept that puppet. Uh, absolutely. Because, like, the cutest scene in the movie is him drinking the milk and he just, like, does the fucking bird dipper thing into the water. <laughs> yeah. And then this fucking kid, you know, runs out like, No, don't kill him! Don't kill either of them! Blah, blah, blah! And he's, and they're like, Get out of the way! And this thing, the one he's trying to protect has killed like seven people. Right, yeah, there's the weird, because like, like you said, the, the weird sort of mashing of these storylines is one group includes like two people who have at least been murdered, at the very least. Like in the, like the, one of the, girls is like being chased and she's like ah i fell and now i have like a weird big dipper symbol on my forehead after i oh, yeah. died um and the same thing happens with the, like the few of the hunters who died at the beginning of the movie it's this weird mesh where it feels very clear like two tastes that wouldn't have been good on their own and aren't very good together at all the scene with the girl in the shower he just throws her into the shower door and up oh, she's dead like i just don't understand i mean i do understand obviously it's a low budget shit movie i mean that was trying to capitalize on like nine different sort of genres at once. It's just, this was thoroughly torturous for me. So that, like I said, and I, I don't mean to be that guy on a podcast talking about movies, but it's like, I don't have much to say about this one because I, I fucking hated it. Like you said, if they would have done something more, maybe even with the costume or had any kind of mechanisms or to the ears of it or the nose of it. I mean, how they could have used fucking fishing wire and made it move and stuff. It would have gave it a little bit more personality. But as it stands, it just looks like a paper mache mask on a, like a brown gorilla suit. Like they took the Ewok costume and then put a weird paper mache mask on top of it. Absolutely what it looks like. And if they would have done anything to give it any sort of more life or personality, I guarantee you it would have notched the movie up at least half a point. Because at least something would have been happening in all these scenes you get with this kid and and Trumpy. Or, it's just basically this kid who can't act, and especially in the version we're watching with the worst dubbing, acting off nothing. Yeah, it sums it up. I don't think you have much else to say, clearly. So um, I'll just briefly state as a final thought, I generally agree with you. Um, I would say if you want to watch any of this, watch the MST3K version or even just compilations of the scenes with Trumpy and the kid, which I think are kind of interesting in their own right. But I'll also say what's so interesting is the fact that um, apparently all of the stuff with Trumpy and the kid that was E.T. specific was not an idea of the director, and was definitely the producers kind of butting in because E.T. was so popular, and he had so much issue with the fact that this became like a weird mesh that didn't totally work whatsoever and i think that also just proves that like look we've talked many times about like too many cooks in the kitchen and more from like a hollywood perspective but it shows that uh even in an international scale uh stupid producers can interrupt filmmakers that at least would have a more interesting thing to say like we mentioned watch pieces 
Pieces is a much more interesting movie made by the same guy, featuring one of the same actors with, or a couple of the same actors, but particularly the guy with like the curly hair, who's like the leader of the band, is sort of the weird main student character, <laughs> who has a weird ending in his fucking fate with pieces. I would definitely recommend. But the point is, uh, we, we should talk about pieces at some point, Adam. Let's pencil that in. I'm down for pieces. Yes. For show. But we're going to talk about a much more interesting movie we'll definitely have a lot to dissect about in a moment. First, though, here's an ad for an ESO so you can queue up right after hours. Monster, why so glum, chum? Oh, hi, Bane. I have to write a promo for my podcast. For well, you should do something like, I am the monster, and I could kill you, but instead, I will simply break you if you don't listen to my podcast. I think that's a bit much. I don't see how that's a problem. The Monster Sci-Fi Show is part of the ESO Network. It's sci-fi. From a certain point of view. Alright, now we're going to be talking about Pedro Almodovar's The Skin Island. So, The Skin I Live In uh, came out September 2nd, 2011 in Spain, and was written and directed by Pedro Almodovar, who was the director we were sort of coyly referencing earlier as one of the more prominent Spanish directors out there, and it is also, we are recording on September 25th, his 71st birthday, so happy birthday, Pedro. Yes, happy birthday, sir. You have produced a wealth of films. Yep, uh, he's been working since, like, the late 70s, early 80s. Are you that familiar with his filmography in general, Adam, besides The Skin I Live In? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not, like, crazy familiar with it, but I've seen uh, my fair share. I think I've seen, you know, a good four or five of his films. Yeah, I did sort of, like, a crash course in a similar vein to that, um, because a few of his movies are on the Criterion streaming service, so I definitely did. (laughs) So I've seen some stuff like uh, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, um, and High Heels, which are both on Criterion, and also um, All About My Mother, which was the movie that won a Best Foreign Language film for him, Um, and then also recently Pain and Glory, which was the movie that Antonio Banderas, star of Skin I Live In, uh, was nominated for an Oscar for very recently, his first Oscar, surprisingly. And uh, what I like about his movies based on the limited pool I've seen is definitely there's sort of like a, an interest in melodrama, but also in like sort of creating these characters that might not be the most immediately relatable, but are at least very engaging, despite how much they're kind of drawn from near telenovela levels of sort of like over-the-top silly antics. Um, but I would argue Skin I Live In kind of feels like a departure from that. Yeah, I think you're. I think that's a hundred percent accurate. You know, you got to figure. I when the first time I saw this, I was really interested in it because of just even the the cover of it, mm-hmm. because it's got you know it's got her in the mask and Antonio Banderas behind it, and I went completely blind. I had no idea what I was going into. I think I had seen like a one to two page blurb about it in like Fangoria magazine or something, and uh, so I was like, "Whoa, this sounds really fucking kind of." weird and interesting because they didn't really give a lot away you know the whole idea is you know uh, but um make sure you don't 
go too spoilery with it, Adam, when we do our plot synopsis thing. Ah, yeah, I mean, I will. <laughs> yeah. And also, as we like, we get into it, we should probably also emphasize a bit of like a trigger warning out there for anybody, because uh, with the skin I live in, there's a lot of stuff about like sexual assault, and rape, be forewarned, we'll be going into that as we keep going here. Yeah, it's it's definitely a movie that deals with some pretty uh, dark and upsetting themes. So if like if those type of films or even those sort of ideas are a little bit too much of a hot button or disturbing to you, maybe skip this part. Right. But go on, Adam, with your plot synopsis. Non-spoilers possible. There is spoilers, and there probably will be a spoiler. Oh, we have to uh, talk extensively about the plot of this movie. Uh, but basically, the idea is uh, Antonio Banderas plays a very wealthy uh, surgeon slash doctor, and in his house, he has this woman confined to a room that he watches with cameras, and he makes her wear these body suits, and he's he's created this sort of synthetic skin that he puts on her to prevent her from being hurt or burned and things like that. And then it just sort of becomes a deconstruction sort of who done it and why is this happening uh, from there on. And it goes places that going in blind, I was like, I cannot believe this is what they're doing. And I got to be honest, watching it again today for the second time since I've seen it, uh, even knowing it's coming, I'm still watching it going, this is fucking wild. Without getting into the spoiler yet, the thing about it is what what they do, Thomas, in my opinion, what they do in the movie, what the twist is, uh, if handled by anyone else, could have come off really sort of offensive and cheesy and schlocky. Mm-hmm. I think he handles it in a very, very, I don't want to say a good way, because what it, ultimately what it is, it's its torture and it's horrible. But as far as addressing sort of the, the uh, sexuality issue and the trans issue of it, it doesn't, it, to me, it didn't feel like, oh my God, I was a man who is now a woman. Oh, kill me. Like, it didn't come across like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I love that how, you're like, without spoiling it yet, <laughs> well, okay. The guy fucking has sex with his daughter, and she freaks out. And Tony Bandana's daughter, she freaks out to, and uh, goes clinical. She's already been clinical. She goes crazier, jumps out a window, and Tony Bandana's captures the guy and turns him into a woman. There you go. Well, I mean, you, you forgot a key detail that like uh, that guy has uh, rapes his daughter specifically. Well, while she's like unconscious. That is absolutely not true. She is absolutely not unconscious. He's having sex with her. He thinks she's into it because he's all stoned and she's not really doing anything. She's not reacting. He doesn't understand she's all drugged up on antidepressants and, and psychotropics and things like Sorry, that. Sorry, you're right. So drugged and under the influence, both of them, yes. Right. And then once she sort of like starts freaking out and screaming no, he does like raise up and stop and then she bites his hand and he slugs her and knocks her out and he leaves. But because she's sort of, you know, mentally scarred because of what happened with her mother, and ultimately what happens where because she's knocked unconscious while it's happening, it wakes up and it's Antonio Banderas scared to waking her up, she can't detach from the fact that it wasn't him who knocked her out. This was the first Pedro Moldovar movie I saw, and I was in a similar boat to you when I initially saw it, where I was like, oh, wow, I did not expect this to be what it was, and it was really fascinating. I really loved it. Um... Then, and I will say, I still like it now, 
but having seen the other Pedro Almodovar movies I've seen, I can at least say I feel like this one's on the lower end to me because it feels a lot more like the the other Pedro Almodovar movies kind of present their characters who do awful things. Like there's plenty of like weird attempts at like sexual assault and weird like the last movie they did together, him and uh, Antonio Banderas, who we should point out Pedro Almodovar like basically started his career like his first movie. Um, Antonio Banderas' first movie was, like, a small bit part on a Pedro Almodovar movie back in the early 80s. Um, this is their first movie since Time Me Up, Time Me Down, so, like, a solid 20-year gap. Um, it kind of feels like, instead of presenting all these characters with their, like, really interesting lived-in personalities, it feels very much more like we're kind of focusing on, like, the Antonio Banderas character and our, um, we should mention the name of, it's, uh, Vera when um, transitioned into female, and Vincente, Vincente, when yeah, uh, he Vincente was initially male. Right, Vincente and Vera. And we should also probably emphasize that when we talk about Vincente and Vera, it's really only to differentiate between the two versions of the character we see, because the character only really ever identifies as Vincente, even when they're transformed into uh, female sex, yeah. basically. So usually they would use, like, he pronouns but and we get a a bit more like character out of vincente and not as much out of antonio i never feel like as engrossed in his character despite how much antonio banderas is kind of trying to put into that role it's nothing on banderas but i just kind of feel like this one's a lot more cold and clinical overall than any of all moldovar's movies which is stretching himself out a bit more but also kind of feels like it's a bit more clinical and less engaging emotionally to me uh yeah i mean i I think that's absolutely 100 percent accurate Ultimately, you're following, like you said, you're following uh, Vincente, who becomes Vera, his story. Antonio Banderas is basically playing a mad scientist. Yes. I will say, he's fucking acting his ass off in it with the little material he's got. I mean, he's doing yes. absolutely phenomenal. You know, but Elena Anaya, oh man, God, is she amazing in this movie as Vera. She's so fantastic. Uh, and, and, the movie is sort of, you know, it's anchored on her, and I think it's, that was a smart decision, at least, because you do want to sort of, in my opinion, follow what the hell is going, like, what is going to happen to this person now, and what has this person, you know, just, once you find out ultimately what happened, you're like, oh my god, you just want to follow, you know, the Vera character and see it, so I don't really have a problem with it, more or less, like, everyone else being sort of titiary characters. I, I do think there is a, a certain uh, coldness to this film. Now, I don't know if it's because it's very clinical as far as even just the colors and, and the nature itself. There's a lot of sort of medical rooms and medical procedures and medical talks and things like that. There's not as much, I don't want to say levity, because that's not necessarily the case in other uh, Pedro Almodovar movies. But there's no sort of inner light to it, like you do yes. find in some of the movies. Completely agree with that. There's, and I think a lot of it honestly has to do with like watching it again. I kind of realize it's more of a structural thing for me. I think I would be more entranced with the movie if we kind of didn't have the weird, um, like non-linear storytelling the way we do. Because the first half we spend it where like we see Vera initially and she's living in this house and it just seems like, oh, is he, she just a captive and she's always been female? And then we find out halfway through like what the real twist is and we flash back. I feel like honestly, if we played this linearly, I think we would have gotten a bit more of that perspective and been a bit, I would have personally been more 
like drawn in as opposed to like the way it's structured i think doesn't kill it but feels like it kind of makes it more of like oh this is just a shocking plot twist as opposed to an unraveling web i i definitely agree with you now i would have disagreed with you on first watch i'd be like no i really like that it just sort of hits you in the middle of the movie and you're like holy shit what is happening here like this is fucking wild but I, I definitely agree with you now to where if it absolutely would have just sort of played out in real time on screen I think it would add a little bit more umph to the story. And you would have gotten more as far as behind the, I don't want to, well, I guess the motives of the Antonio Banderas character dealt with the pain that he's sitting in. And, you know, as it stands, I, I do think it's a wonderfully fucking shot movie. I mean, there is some absolutely gorgeous cinematography in this movie. The basic one locale is beautiful, the house and right outside the house. There's one major part of this movie that I feel is 1,000% unnecessary, and that is the brother character, the tiger character, uh, coming in and kidnapping his own mother and basically uh, raping the Vera character. Now, I know why he's in there, for them to you know give the backstory of what happened to Antonio Banderas' wife, or, or whatever you may call it, but you could have easily just done that by saying she ran off with his brother. You didn't need to have this character come back for a 10-minute scene that was just basically for brutality. I feel really conflicted about that whole plot line because I do agree with you about like the ultimate purpose of it, especially it feels very weird where it's like, oh, so we're like doing a payback thing when you kind of realize later who Vera was initially. It feels like a weird, yeah. like, it's a karmic thing of like, oh, you, you know, ended up... Uh, having your way with this girl here so now you're gonna be you know violated by this you know random stranger um at the same time i feel like it, it's a weird kind of like karmatic thing that i'm not sure what quite it's going for with that but also i really like all the scenes where um he is talking to his mother who is also we should mention uh marias paredes who has been in a bunch of pedro moldovar movies this is incredible and especially like all about my mother mm -hmm. she's tremendous in that movie I like their scenes together. It feels the most kind of like that electric Almodovar lived in element to me because it's this weird conflict of like, oh, I'm this mother who is one son is a wanted criminal. The other one's a brilliant but evil man at the same time. And there's a bit more like interior interesting conflict where I'm just like, I kind of want to follow her. She has like the more interesting conflict going on to me, honestly, in terms of just like actual emotional pathos versus the stuff with Vera and versus Antonio Banderas. It feels a lot more like we're kind of developing the plot along of like A to B, C to D, but you're obviously given the structure. It's like D to E, then go back and here's how we got to D <laughs> earlier in the movie. Yeah, I could definitely see that. They, they plant the seeds of a very sort of interesting backstory with, with the maid slash mother's character in the film. If they would have just went a more linear story and then given her the flashbacks, I'd have, I think that would have worked out a lot better. Mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately, I mean, she is fucking just absolutely fantastic in this movie as well. Uh, like, you know, I'm, I'm picking at the carcass of this movie, basically, uh, because I do still really, really enjoy it. I do still think it's, it's very well done. I do still think the acting in it is fantastic. I think it's wonderfully shot. It's got an amazing score. When it's over, especially this time, I was like, okay. Like, I, I just left me, I don't know if it left me wanting more, but it definitely didn't leave me satisfied. It rings a bit more hollow 
it feels a bit more like El Moldovar's kind of showing off, like, look at the intricacies and the webs that I weave here, as opposed to that comes off a lot more naturally in some of the stuff, like, um, how all the, like, side characters and everybody weaves together in, like, an All About My Mother, um, I just think is, like, masterfully done. It's just like, oh my god, like, all these silly melodramatic scenes really come together in this, like, beautiful, weird tapestry of what the life of all these people ultimately kind of comes to. And, I mean, we should probably address, we're talking about this movie in which one character's sex is forcibly changed on them, and admittingly, we are two cisgender men here. I was really worried, honestly, going back to this, mm. um, about, like, the Vincente de Vera relationship, like, how would I feel about it now? And I don't feel like it's... To, from my perspective, necessarily transphobic, I, but also it doesn't feel like it has much of anything interesting to say about that beyond the general, like, twist of it. Like, the, the movie really wants to be Eyes Without a Face. Like, it's very clearly inspired by the 60s French movie, which is very beautiful looking. I feel like it kind of has some similar problems to me in terms of pacing, but I think in terms of, like, especially visually, aesthetically, it's trying to be that. But I think what that movie does is kind of develop this Frankenstein scenario but give you a lot more pathos for the sort of victim, as opposed to, like, Pedro's like, well, he was a piece of shit, and now she's a victim. Karma. <laughs> like, I don't I don't really get, like, the emotional gratification as much, as much as I would want to. And I'm like, yeah, fuck this guy, who's also, like, forcing you to have sex with him, Antonio Banderas. Like, I want to, like, feel so much for that, but I feel like it's so detached emotionally that I don't feel as invested in what's going on. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you, especially... With the eyes without a face, homage to be fancy. I, I am I am one hundred percent invested in the Elena and Yana character, and I do really enjoy the housekeeper and Antonio Banderas. What the little he's he's given is really sort of chewing the scenery when he's in it, but there's not much else around it. It doesn't like it is all confined to one house, and I mean that's fine. But it, but I never get a sense of the world around this story, or the world around these three people. It, it which is sometimes fine. It can you can have a very, you know, sort of story structure where it's only two to three people. I mean, we it does work. It it could have worked if they would have given more to the other, you know, one to two main players something to do. I think when you do a movie like that, where it's based in one location, it works to have more of this interior life that we're talking about, that El Moldovar likes to put into his characters, likes to put especially into sort of like his familiar relationships that are in his movies. And I don't think this one quite has that, and it's much more interested in, like we mentioned, displaying all of this stuff in a way that's like the shock. They're like, huh? Yeah. See it? Get it? It's like, yeah, I got it, Pedro. <laughs> I got it. That's that's fine. Like I love that in some like a pain and glory, which was his most recent movie, where like the sort of initial thing is like, oh, Antonio Banderas, okay, like he's this washed up filmmaker who's kind of like outs on his life. Sure, it's going to be like a very autobiographical story, and then just casually in the first, I think like ten minutes of that movie, he's getting back together with a former lover, and his lover's like, hey, you want to snort heroin? Yeah, let's do it. Like they they just throw that off casually. <laughs> And it just becomes this, like, weird part of this person's life that's, like, off the side. Like, yeah, I do heroin. While I'm in the middle, like, a filmmaker who's struggling with all this other shit. Like, that stuff never comes as much here to me. It be feels like it's much more deliberate about, like, oh, look, here we're, like, skin grafting her. And here's the sequence where we show off all the different, like, insertions that she needs to do after a certain uh -huh. point. Like, it really is, like, so deliberate about, like, oh, isn't this really shocking interesting? Like, that's not as interesting to me as stuff, like the few details I would say are in this movie, like her writing the dates on the wall. Yes, I agree. 
some bits like even with the robber character how like he is dressed up like the cat and they bring him it's like oh it's like when i was a kid meow and he does like the fucking stupid cat thing like yeah, stuff like that makes them a bit more human so it makes like this elaborate horror concept a lot more like engaging especially when you're violating somebody as horribly as vincente is being violated here and in every possible way too yes that's that's i mean it's it's literally in every way possible he's deconstructed this man and, and turned it into something else. And then we ultimately find out he, he recrafted his face to look like his, his dead wife's face. That just adds a whole nother level of, Oh God to it. You know what I mean? Like, like weirdly, I, I honestly feel like I would have been so much more interested in this movie. If a lot of this horror stuff was more like front loaded in general, like this, a lot of the story we get and we focus maybe even like just the third act on Vincente kind of, dealing with being Vera and like trying to integrate back into their life. Because I like a lot more of the stuff that's like Vincente like hanging out with um his mother and that coworker at the dress shop. I think that stuff has a lot more of that interior life that we were talking about initially and gets you a lot more invested in like, oh, when Vin Vera goes back and says like I'm Vincente, then the movie ends at that point. I that's more of what I'm kind of wanting, honestly. It's like, well, has this kind of integrate from here? How do you kind of go from this point? That feels more like an Almoldivar kind of like touch to do it's like well i'm in the situation how do i like continue with my life from here for me in order for that to work like if they were going to in in the form of the movie we have uh if they're going to do it then they they would definitely have to cut out some other things because that would have made the movie way too long so i i kind of actually like the end where it falls off I, i i sort of do i mean granted there really is no sort of retribution for the, what the Vincente character has gone through. I mean, I'm not necessarily like asking for that because I don't think Almodovar really ever quite goes for that in his movies anyway. I think they're all kind of messy and complicated and make them all yes. more distinctive. Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, with with what you just said. But yeah, I, I like the way it sort of ends with, you know, he, he tells the co-worker and the co-worker believes him and then his mom comes up and he just said, as the camera fades out, I'm Vincente. And then it's over. I, to me, that was enough. Because I, I like sort of my imagination going where it's like, what's going to happen now? Like, obviously, they're going to want to report to the police what happened to them. And then now is he going to get arrested for murder? Like, what is going to happen here? And I'm glad sort of they don't show you all that. I mean, I'm, I think that's definitely what he's going for. And I don't think that, in theory, is like something I would be against, like the actual ending of the movie being. I just think my bigger problem is like when, as we mentioned, we spend so much time kind of developing a lot more of the stuff about, like, oh, the, the flashback to Antonio Banderas' daughter and all this other stuff, where, like, so many of these other, like, female characters feels like we're kind of robbing them of any kind of, like, individuality or agency, which is feels so anti-Almodovar. Like, that's what I really like about mother-daughter relationships in his movies, like High Heels or All About My Mother. And I just feel like we're kind of spending a lot more time with, like, oh, you fucked my daughter and you made her kill herself. So this is all about me and how I'm going to fuck you over. And this is going to be a cycle of like torture and rape and all this other stuff. Like it doesn't feel like there's a lot more of like the flourishes to make that like as developed as I think Amaldivar wants it to seem. I don't know if I'm rambling, but. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I get exactly what you're going for. Like I said, I, th- I think that's that's ultimately what has become on, you know, second viewing sort of the, the problem with the film itself. There's a lot of sort of slow burn meandering 
sort of scenes in it that are, are a little unnecessary, uh, especially, unfortunately, when it comes to a lot of the stuff that has to do with Banderas himself. I just, I wish he would have had more of a character arc. I really do, because I think he's fucking really good in this. It's just that he doesn't have a lot to do. Yeah, and I don't want to seem, make it seem like I'm totally dogging on the movie either, because there are a lot of moments that I think sort of show off, um, I think, the potential of this being, like, especially Almodovar doing a weird Frankenstein story. That's what initially, like, I loved about it when I first saw it. Uh-huh. And I think still see shades of that. Like, I like the bit where Antonio goes down to his weird, like, laboratory that's underneath the house, and you see just, like, it's, that's where the clinicalness, I think, really works, where it's just like, oh, here's all the elegant little pieces of, like, here's this syringe, and here's this, and here's how he, like, delicately places his gloves and everything. That's where it feels, like, sleek and stylish, but in a way that really unnerves you. Because ultimately, that's basically how the movie starts with the Banderas character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish they would have kind of done more with that, because that part leaves you wanting them to keep going sort of in this direction with him. And ultimately... I mean, let's be honest, ultimately he turns out to be a fucking hornball. Oh, very much a rapist, where it's just like, I'm gonna, like, have this weird white knight thing where I saved you from being raped, but I'm also basically gonna force you to have sex with me. He's an awful person. Yes. I mean, in every absolute way that you could imagine. But like I said, at the end, he just, his ultimate downfall is he's trying to get laid. And, and that's what ultimately kills him, and you're like, okay. Which is why, like, I would say, I think it's handled... In a obviously a very problematic fashion, but it's still in like a in, more interesting fashion with timing up, timing down. Or if you don't know, the basic premise of that is Antonio Banderas plays this guy who he is released from a mental institution and is like, oh, hmm, what am I going to do with my life now? I do have all these trades I could do. Oh, how about I sneak onto a film set and stalk this lady who's like the main actress of this horror movie and then I end up like keeping her captive in her own house and then they weirdly fall in love with each other? Like, there's a lot of, obviously, problematic elements to that. But I feel like I know so much about both the Antonio Banderas character and, I'm sorry I forgot her name, but the lady who was in that one, and also High Heels, who's the main actress. I feel like I know so much about both these characters that everything's fucked up and weird, but at the same time, I at least get a sense of who these characters are on, like, a three-dimensional level. Versus Vincente, I think it's, like, two and a half dimensions, and Antonio gets, like, one and a half, (laughs) basically, in this one. Yeah, no, I absolutely think that's 100% accurate. And and you really, really want there to be this, like you said, like sort of almost Frankenstein and Frankenstein's a monster, you know, to, to use that term loosely uh, when it applies to this, uh, sort of relationship or idea there. And unfortunately, it just ultimately comes off where he's just trying to bang. For, from what you set the movie up for, uh, and, and what his character is and what he's doing and why he's doing it and everything. Like, I, I, I'm not, I don't have a problem with him because he's clearly fucking crazy, like ultimately falling in love with his own creation and, and things like that. Like, I get it. But when the ending of the movie is you are begging this person who you've had locked up for years, I think at this point, to go find a lube and then they come up and shoot you. Like, that. it just feels like a really sort of weak payoff. I guess, but what else would I want at that point, too? I don't want to see the, the windmill fucking, like, tumble down around him. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't know. It just feels like you maybe there was maybe a, a beat that was missed there. It, it just ultimately feels like Almodovar is more interested in kind of, like, getting these shocks out to you 
as opposed to giving those shocks more for you to, like, stew in. Because I think that's what kind of, like, really engrossed both of us when we first saw the movie, is, oh my god, the twists and turns, I can't believe where it went, it's crazy. What else you got, obviously? Yeah, basically. But uh, do you have any final thoughts, then? Because we've been talking quite a bit about uh, the skin I live in. No, like I said, I just think it's fun. Fun might not be the operative term. (laughs) Yeah, fun. No, it's not fun. (laughs) I think it's well done. I think it's beautifully shot. It's wonderfully acted. It's a beautiful film to look at. What happens in the movie is maybe not beautiful. I still do enjoy the movie. I still do still think it's a really good movie. But stacked up to some of his other stuff, no. I mean, it doesn't rank it near the near the top anymore but i do still think it's a very interesting film and i think it's uh there could be more to it like there's a lot of missed opportunities in it yeah i think it's because you do see a lot of these interesting reflections like even we didn't talk much about it but the whole angle of like most of the time whenever he sees her it's through like these different security cameras that he has some of which are like smaller and out of date some of which are like this like giant wall that takes up like the whole fucking screen of like her laying in her like captive cell basically um there's there's stuff like that where it feels like okay we're kind of talking about the fragility of this relationship and how much of it is like pedro showing us that like oh antonio banderas like is having so much distance despite how close this person literally is in proximity and all this other stuff i think there's a lot of interesting details there that makes it i don't think a bad move by any stretch i think it is still um fits the good half of our uh sort of dynamic that we do with the show but at the same time it feels a bit more like when Almodovar really works when I think he kind of like blends genres together like one minute it's a melodrama and the next minute it's like a heart-wrenching crime thriller and then it turns into like this uh, my, my mother's dying cancer drama like a lot of his movies kind of like twist and turn within that a lot and I think this one goes more straightforward as like a genre exercise to its detriment it becomes a lot more of, like, a horror, like, oh, this is, like, really spooky, fucked up, can you believe it, kids? And it's like, I don't feel as invested in that from Pedro Almodovar. Weirdly, when he's more focused in that way, it feels like his movies kind of have less to say than when he does, like, all these different extravagant ideas of, like, oh, look, we're turning one corner here, one corner here, but it's all gonna make sense at the end. As opposed to, this movie, like, it, I get where you're going for, it makes sense all the way through, but I'm still just, like, not as quite invested on any emotional level as I am in his other movies. But, still good. Still, I would be curious to hear other people um, have any feedback about it, especially, say, if you're a trans listener. I'd be curious to hear your opinion on it. Yeah. But, that is the end of our discussion of our two films for the evening. And, you know, speaking of feedback, Adam, uh, we usually put a call out every monday at DEGB pod about like hey what are your favorite least favorite movies related to whatever topic we're doing and uh we didn't get a lot of feedback admittingly um but we did get at least one from our uh, previous guest and loyal listener james rodriguez um who says in terms of spanish cinema favorites pan's labyrinth a masterpiece wild tales six short stories of revenge told with dark humor cell 211 a gripping and unpredictable drama um, as a new guard caught in the middle of a prison riot poses as a prisoner. The Orphanage, uh, a chilling ghost story that will stay with you long after the credits roll. Wreck, um, 75 minutes of horror which builds effectively until the terrifying finale. 
Least favorites, Rec 3 Genesis, a film which makes a gun-wielding children's entertainer uh, dressed as Spongebob so boring. Uh, the Heroes of Evil, what if A Clockwork Orange had the crime rampage of Alex Dragon for an hour and a half in boring ways? Um, and Intruders, where a good cast can't make this Clive Owen thriller any less tiresome. Yeah, I, I think I've seen most of what he referenced. Intruders was absolutely a bore fest. I don't know if you caught that one. No. It's, it's, well, you know, it's Clive Owen in a leading role. Unfortunately, as much as I do like Clive Owen, Clive Owen can't really carry a film. Unless it's like Children of Men, but he has such huge supporting <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. Fuck. Yeah, right. The Orphanage is really fucking good. I love The Orphanage, yeah. Phenomenal That's, film. Yeah, and, I, and I really like that director. It's Juan uh, Bayona, Juan Antonio Bayona, who's done... Yeah. Um, some some other stuff like a monster calls or even the most recent Jurassic Park movie, which I have a lot of issues with, but he does like a lot of interesting set piece stuff. Especially, I think the dumbest part of that movie is when they go to the auction thing at the mansion. But at the same time, I kind of love the sequence of the weird raptor kind of becoming a ghost in the haunted house. It's like, oh, why don't yeah. you just do this as a Jurassic Park movie? Just like a raptor is stuck in a house. With a family or something. That'd be like 20 minutes long. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I like J.O. Uh, the Orphanage is absolutely fantastic. And of course, the first two rec films are, are wonderful. Avoid the second two. Um, I rewatched at least the first two recs recently. I think the first rec is one of the best examples. Nothing else I found footage horror. Um, because it really gets you engrossed in this like really small, captive environment. And I think Rec 2 is fun. I think it's lessened a bit for me when I rewatched it recently, but those are still like a good package together. Um, and then notably with the other two movies, the two directors end up splitting off and doing one and the other. But I'd say Rec 3 of those two not-so-good ones is at least the more watchable one. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, Rec 3, it, it's not a horrible film. But compared no. to the first two, it just doesn't stack up. But yes, I absolutely agree. Compare three to four, without question. Four is just garbage. Three feels just kind of like, oh, this was a horror comedy script you had, and you kind of tailored it to the Wreck franchise in a way that feels very detached. Uh, Versus Wreck Four is like weirdly trying to wrap up all the stuff with the other two Wreck movies, but in like the laziest way possible. It's literally Wreck takes Manhattan, which is code for it's on a boat the whole time. Yep, it's atrocious. Um, and I mean, you know, the Pan's Labyrinth was referenced here, and like Del Toro is obviously a Mexican director, but he's um, dabbled in Spain, including Devil's Backbone, which is my favorite of his, is produced by Pedro Almodovar. Yes, Devil's Backbone is also my favorite. Oh, such a great movie. But yes, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is, it's, it's, that's quite a gripping film as well. Well, actually, really kind of, I'm a fan of pretty much anything he's put his hands on. You know, even if I don't like maybe the structure or the story of the film, but the sort of the aesthetics and the way it's shot and everything are always just fucking gorgeous, top notch. Yeah. I would, I would also say in terms of just some other ones I might want to recommend, um, in terms, if you want like a weird, like horror comedy, I would recommend, um, Alex de la Iglesia director uh, who did witching and bitching. Uh, Oh, you know, I never watched that dude. I kept meaning to. Right, it's it's a crazy weird horror comedy that first starts off with like bank robbers getting murdered and then ends up like they run into a coven of witches and it goes like bonkers, crazy weird. And I know that director's done stuff like The Last Circus and a few other things that are like similarly crazy and weird and has a really fun role for Javier Botet, who's probably one of my favorite of like these sort of uh, Spanish actors, especially who does like 
the suit work. He's basically like the Spanish equivalent to um, a Doug Jones. Um, he's been in like the Wreck movies. He plays like the woman at the end of the the first and second Wreck. And God, is he? He's really good at it. Um, and he was the he was the leper in it the it movies as well, and a, a bunch of other even American movies that have come out. Raw. He was Mama in Mama. Yes, absolutely. Um, I also want to go ahead and just throw a recommendation. Open your eyes on there. Right, which is the original version of Vanilla Sky. Yeah, it's exactly the original. To the point where Penelope Cruz actually plays the same character in both. Right. It's really, really good. And, but I'm also a huge fan of Vanilla Sky. I think it's very underrated. Um, and also, you know, one we, we talked about briefly in our um, time travel episode a few weeks back, but uh, Time Crimes. Oh, it's so good. And that's an example of a movie where, like, you don't really know all the pieces that are, like, revealed to you later. It's not linear, but you it works perfectly for that fucking movie. And I love Nacho Bigalondo in general. Oh, yeah, me too, for sure. One I would recommend that I think really got lost in the shuffle because it went under a bunch of different titles. Like, I saw this when it was at Fantasia Fest as Psychonauts, but I believe it is titled in the U.S. Bird Boy, The Forgotten Children, uh, which is an animated post-apocalyptic movie. Um, about basically like this little bird boy kind of trying to survive in the middle of like this apocalypse filled with like mutated animals essentially um, is tremendous especially if you like miss 2D animation it's one of the most beautifully done 2D movies I've seen in a long time that sounds super super familiar I, I believe it's based off like a comic strip in Spain from what I recall I think I know Psychonauts was like the original title it's like, that's like a video game thing over here that people would confuse it with so they retitled yeah, right. it at that point um, but no, that movie, I think, really got lost in the shuffle, like, several years ago, and I think is, like, a weird, beautifully done, it kind of reminds me a lot of, like, uh, Don Bluth-era animation, in terms of, like, um, it really puts you through the ringer, in terms of, like, emotionally, <laughs> it's just like, oh my god, this is so harrowing, despite, it's like, animated birds and shit going through, like, this weird, like, post-apocalyptic storyline, um, but yeah, I, I, that's one I think, uh, definitely should be sought out. But, uh, thank you... James for that feedback, and we hope to receive more feedback from everybody else out there anytime we do a show. Also, we want to thank Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And uh, thanks, of course, to our loyal Patreon subscribers. As I mentioned at the top of the show, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where you all get to uh, vote for, you know, either individual movies we do for a show, which we'll talk about as we do our picking for next time, or topics we do for the show, or even listen to monthly bonus podcasts. This same week that this episode's being released, you'll be able to listen to our bonus episode for September, in which Adam and I talk about the Joss Whedon one season and one movie wonder, Firefly and Serenity, which uh, will be very interesting to hear, I'm sure. Yeah, that was interesting going back. And, uh... You know, I went back and binged the entire show again and the movie. Uh, so that'll be interesting. As did I. So it'll be, it's, it's, there's a lot to talk about. So uh, that's patreon.com slash GEDBpod. And you can get all of that just for $1 a month. Just a buck. I'd buy that for a dollar, says yeah. that fucking guy in Robocop a lot. Yes, and you, you can become an edgelord as we call our patrons. What else would you want to be called? You know what I mean? On the internet, of course. That's the only positive things come from that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And uh, if you want 
uh, more of our silly antics, you can um, go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod, and you can even uh, send feedback. Like we mentioned, every Monday we post up those feelers about feedback, and also you can uh, email us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com if you want to submit feedback. I also do uh, some musings at not the who's Tommy on Twitter and Instagram, um, and I do some writing at marianithomas.wordpress.com for reviews and lists and stuff like that. And uh, you can find Adam trying to get his band together to get the engines rolling now. Uh. Idiot control now. <laughs> and if you want more of these great, silly antics, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, why not dig into the archives of the first several episodes we did before we joined the network? And if nothing else, if you could rate, review, or just share the show around, it helps us a lot. It gives us more visibility. I mean, I'm getting kind of tired of saying that. But fucking, just, it's a one-button thing. You know what I mean? One-button thing. You, it, no matter how you do it. If you like it, if you rate it, or if you share it, it's one button. Put away the prawn for a minute and just share it. The, the prawn? It's old leet speak for porn. <laughs> <laughs> well, oof, we're going back into the spooky archives to hear that. And Adam, you know, if this is our last episode of September, and oh, I'm feeling a chill in the air. Oh, you feel that, Adam? It's it's time for the spooky October season to arise. And what do we do every October? We do genre picks, horror films, all my favorite things. <laughs> we're not doing musicals, though, again. <laughs> Despite how much you clearly want to sing about it. <laughs> we could we could find horror musicals I'm sure of it oh, there's there's a fair amount out there yeah but that's not our topic for next week because uh, next time we'll be doing uh, we'll be kicking off the October spooky haunt season with an episode on vampires vampire films oh vampire oh listen to them children of the night that's beautiful music they make this is interesting because usually, as I mentioned at the top, each of us has two movies of a certain quality. One has two good movies, one has two bad movies, and each assigns them between one and ten for those movies, and then the other person picks a number between one and ten on their own, and that ends up getting us close to the good and bad feature, except when we have our patrons vote. And our patrons voted between my two good picks for this particular episode, and uh, my two picks were uh, for the good, in this case, and it was... Uh, between Only Lovers Left Alive, the Jim Jarmusch movie, and then our ultimate winner, which I was very excited to see, Tony Scott's The Hunger. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was down for either one of those. I honestly thought it was going to go The Only Lovers Left Alive just because of uh, Tom Hilson and Tilda Swinton, but, you know, you can't ever underestimate the Bowie. A bit of recency bias, yeah, as opposed to, yeah, getting Bowie and Sarandon, Cliff Young, everyone's favorite. Yep. Yes, and now, Adam, you're, you have your two bad picks, so I'm going to be the one picking a number myself, and I'm going to go with number six. All right. At number eight, I have Scottish Dracula, Dracula 2000. The Gerard Butler vehicle. Gerard Butler as Dracula, who is supposed to, uh, I'm not going to get into it, but I don't know why Dracula is Scottish. It, it, you know, whatever, though. Sure. Uh, at number one, which I'm kind of glad we didn't get, but when we thought of bad vampire movies as the, one of the first ones that popped in there, is uh, Bordello of Blood. Oh, good lord, I'm so glad. Yeah, <laughs> no. Yeah. God, it's such a bad movie. 
But yeah, that one definitely just popped in there. So uh, I mean, I'm I'm more welcome to see Gerard Butler's face than Dennis Miller's or anything in that movie. I mean, yeah, a lot of things in the movie. Trivia: Did you know that was written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale back in the seventies? Yep, I did know that actually. Surprisingly. Yep. Uh, but we're not talking about that. So it'll be The Hunger and Dracula 2000, which you have not seen. No, I've, I've seen the audition tape for Gerard Butler, which is hilarious. But we'll get into all that next time. But until next time, uh, what did you think of that episode, Adam? It stinks. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.